Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, a lot going on in the news today. President Biden is giving a speech right now about inflation. Uh, in, indeed, this is an issue. The Saudis still refuse to take his calls and refuse to raise their oil production, uh, given that 2.2 million barrel a day oil production cut that Jared Kushner worked out with them back in 2020. There's, we're still there. They have not taken oil production back up to where it was before the Trump administration worked out this deal with them to increase their profits at the, uh, basically at the expense of America. So you know, here we are. We got a lot to cover in, a progr in the program today. Uh, oh, and also in his speech, uh, I caught a little bit of it before we went on the air. Uh, President Biden was calling out big corporations for engaging in price gouging. You know, the oil industry, uh, uh, BP just announced the day before yesterday a $9 billion profit, one of their biggest, uh, quarterly profit, one of their biggest ever. So, you know, here we are. Surprise, surprise. Anyhow, I, I want to get into how will Donald Trump's deadly sabotage of America work out? How's this thing going to end? I'll get to that in a minute. And also the real truth about why Ron DeSantis wants communism lessons taught in the public schools in Florida. I don't know if you've caught this story that just came out in the last 24 hours. And another MAGA clerk has been busted, elections clerk has been busted for breaking voting machines or breaking into voting machines. I'll tell you about that. And also is a housing bubble 2.0 underway. Some really alarming statistics comparing 2007 to 2022. I will share that with you and we can discuss what that means and how it's going to impact the American economy and, and whether now is a good time to buy a house or not. So. A lot to talk about today. I want to start out with my daily take from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, How Will Trump's Deadly Sabotage of America End? And I, I think the bottom line here is that, you know, he hasn't been held to account for this. And, and therefore, it is distorting democracy in America. Five years ago today, Donald Trump broke the law and outed an Israeli spy who had embedded himself into ISIS. Trump gave code word classified top secret intelligence to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov when he and Ambassador uh, Kislyak had this private meeting with Donald Trump in the White House, a meeting that was not 
the American press was not notified of and was not on his official calendar. This Israeli spy had spent years burying himself inside ISIS, and he was on the verge of disrupting a plot to attack a city in Russia-controlled Syria. Instead, this spy had to flee for his life because Donald Trump had outed him to the Russians five years ago today. ABC News reported at the time, quote, the life of a spy placed by Israel inside ISIS is at risk tonight, according to current and former U.S. officials, after President Donald Trump reportedly disclosed classified information in a meeting with Russian officials. In the Oval Office, I might add. And Trump wasn't even embarrassed or ashamed by this. In fact, he tweeted. This is ABC News goes on to say, Trump said in a pair of tweets Tuesday he had the, quote, absolute right to share, quote, facts with the Russians, end quote. Can you imagine what Republicans would have done if Hillary Clinton had given top secret class, classified, code word classified intelligence to the Russians about an ISIS plot to damage the Russians? This is Trump helping out the Russians in Syria. If Hillary Clinton had done that, would we have three years of hearings before Congress? Four, five, six? Would she be in prison? But Trump's first loyalty was never to America. It was always to himself and his billionaire buddy, Vladimir Putin, whose war against Ukraine Trump still, to this day, refuses to condemn. I don't know why this isn't like a major story. Every single day that goes by and Donald Trump refuses to agree with U.S. policy on Ukraine, refuses to condemn Putin's attacks on Ukraine, I don't think most Americans even realize this. Donald Trump is still in with Putin. Okay, so crime number one. Crime number two, this month will also commemorate over a million Americans having died from COVID. Now, for the first couple of months of 2020, you'll recall, you know, the, the COVID virus was first detected in uh, December of 2019, which is why it's called COVID-19. And uh, actually it was in uh, November, but it was in December that it kind of hit the press. And, uh, you know, the first four months, uh, January, uh, February, March, well, and arguably to the December before that, uh, Trump's team was actually trying to do something about COVID, uh, although they had stupidly closed the, the pandemic preparedness office in the White House and the pandemic preparedness office in the National Security Council that Obama had put into place after the Ebola scare. But you had MDs, medical doctors on TV every day. The media was freaking out about their refrigerated trucks carrying dead people out of New York City hospitals. By the second week of March, U.S. deaths had ridden, risen from four to 22. But that was the week, March 11th, that, uh, that Trump shut the country down. And then came four weeks later. Now at this time, they had a plan to distribute 650 million masks to Americans through the post office. But then came April 7th. On April 7th of 2020, the New York Times ran a front page story with the headline, Black Americans face alarming rates of coronavirus infection in some states. The opening paragraph laid it out, quote, the coronavirus is infecting and killing black people in the United States at disproportionately high rates, according to data released by several states and big cities, highlighting what public health researchers say are entrenched inequalities in resources, health, and access to care. 
So the New York Times, by the way, the Washington Post, the USA Today, everybody had this as their main headline on April 7th. April 7th, 2020. More black people than white people are dying from COVID. And all across the white supremacist conservative movement in the United States and the Trump White House, there was a collective, what the hell? Tucker Carlson, who had been saying, we need to be careful about this virus, changed his tune that day. Brett Hume changed his tune that day. Rush Limbaugh proclaimed, I've been waiting for the racial element of this. Now it's time to get America back to work. Now that we know it's not killing white people. Not literally those words, but words to that effect. There's a hot link to his actual words in my article. The new message, the new official message from the Trump administration after that April 7th headline, and by the way, it led the news on cable and on, on network television all across the nation. The new official message from the Trump administration and from conservatives right across the board, including organizations like FreedomWorks, was time to, time to get back to work. It's only killing black people. We can put America back to work. We got to get ready for Donald Trump's re-election. On April 12th, Trump retweeted a call to fire Anthony Fauci. He declared on April 12th in another tweet that he had the sole right to open the U.S. back up. So again, like with the Israeli spy that he outed, Donald Trump has never been held to account for setting up many so many uh, uh, gullible Americans to die an agonizing, strangling death. But wait, there's more. Trump conspired with armed white supremacist terrorists to block the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th and the 20th. Now we're learning from national security expert uh, Fiona Hill that Trump's buddy Putin was all in on the January 6th event and promoting it on social media and, and hoping that Donald Trump could hold on to the White House because if he did, he planned to attack Ukraine that year, or the following year, 2021. Trump squeezed a billion dollars, over a billion dollars, out of our government into his own pockets during the four years he was in office. He oversaw a corrupt PPP program where his buddies made off with billions. Again, no oversight. He conspired to steal an election, and when that didn't work, he launched a mob to try to murder the vice president of the United States. We don't know yet if he tried to blackmail Anthony Kennedy, but, you know, it's kind of looking that way. We don't know how much additional intelligence he handed over to Putin. He, he started his uh, administration with a roar. He called the Secretary of State of Georgia and said, find me 11,000 votes. That's a crime. This has been an absolute sabotage of our nation and our national interests. And because Put Trump has not been held to account for this, it's now metastasizing like a cancer with Trumpy can candidates all across the United States. In every state, you've got Trumpy candidates promoting this stuff, sucking up to Russia, promoting violence, not to mention promoting racism and homophobia and misogyny. All of which, in my mind, begs the question, what's it going to take for the Biden Department of Justice to prosecute this criminal? And what has, beyond the things that I've identified, am I missing something here? What other impacts have the failure of Donald Trump had on our country? And I would add, by the way, and it's not in my op-ed, but you know, it occurs to me that we should be also be asking, what impact is it having around the world? I mean, other countries are looking at us going, oh, strong man?
Cool. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Democracy is in trouble, and Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are leading the charge against it. All righty, let's see who's on hold here. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? The prophet, truth, justice, democracy, peace, common good in the American way. Good day to you, sir. Thank you. Tom, just to pick up where you left off, I think Merrick Garner has failed us the same way Robert Miller failed us. Okay? They are not doing their job. And I'm sorry, I know you don't like firing SWAT, but this is the truth. Okay? It appears to me that you're right, Omar. Although, again, we probably won't know until, you know, some kind of an announcement is made. But it appears to me you're right. Okay, why they're not raiding Meadowhouse 5 a.m.? The same thing they did to Trump campaign manager. I can't think of his name. The disgraced campaign manager. Why did they Paul not? Manafort. Why, why did, Paul Manafort, yes. Why did they not raiding Meadowhouse at 5 a.m.? That's, that's what I want to know. So, yeah. so this is something that's going to come back to hunt us. And I don't think Trump is going to run anymore. You know, I think that he's going to make DeSantis his guy. He's going to stand behind him. He's going to get his Twitter account back with Elon Musk buying Twitter. And he's just going to, DeSantis is going to be the guy they're going to be pushing. He's going to endorse him. And I really thought when when Trump, yeah, and I really thought when Trump left, I thought he was going to be like Marie Le Pen's father in France. Like, like, you know, like, I'm going to fade out, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I thought, because Marie Le Pen's father was doing the same thing. And all suddenly he just kind of evaporated and disappeared. And, and I think... To your point, he's a cancer to this country. Trump is a cancer to this country. Unless we do something about him, he's going to destroy the next 2024 election. I agree. I absolutely agree. Yep. Uh, Omar, thank you. Uh, Thank you. Well said. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's up? Well, Tom, I just don't think that Merrick Garland's going to do anything to Trump. I mean, he passed the smell test for uh, a Supreme Court justice because the Republicans said he was okay. He's part of the problem. Yeah, he was Orrin Hatch's suggestion to Barack Obama, yeah, to President Obama. And, and, and Obama has some blame in this. He should have put him through anyway and let the courts hammer, hammer it out, but he just rolled over and played dead. I know, I know. He should have raised absolute holy screaming hell. And, and to your last caller, Trump will not pick DeSantis. He will not back DeSantis because DeSantis is smart enough that if he gets in office to prosecute Trump so that him and his family aren't a threat to his power. That's an interesting take. I mean, I was thinking that Trump and DeSantis, I mean, they're both corrupt, want to be strong men. So why not form an allegiance or an alliance? Because none of them guys trust each other. None of them trust each other. It's like Stalin. You know, he killed off most of the people to help him get in power. Yeah. I mean, if DeSantis becomes president, I don't see him going after Trump. I mean, Trump has such loyalty. His brand name is so strong in the Republican Party in the United States. I would I would see DeSantis wanting to exploit that rather than attack it. Yeah, but if you become if you're going in with the with the attitude of becoming a dictator, you don't care what public opinion is and you take out the people that are the biggest threat to you. Interesting. Interesting. Mark, let me ponder that one. That's uh, thank you. That's a a very thought provoking comment. Stick around. I want to get into the real reasons why, speaking of Ron DeSantis, he wants communism taught in Florida public schools. Isn't this interesting? We'll be right back. 
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. So Ron DeSantis yesterday, with much pomp and circumstance, signed a bill into law in Florida that, first of all, declares that uh, November 7th will officially be the state's Victims of Communism Day. Now, on its surface, this seems like DeSantis sucking up to the wealthy right-wing Cuban refugee community. Uh, most of those people now are so old that you know they're they're dead or gone, but uh, they're they're the second generation is still around. You know, keep in mind when Castro did his coup. He initially wanted to align himself with the United States. He, he reached out to Richard Nixon in 1959 and said, let's work together. And Nixon said no. But Castro, and, you know, which was kind of a strategic blunder, shall we say. But uh, Castro nationalized basically everything. And all the people who had a lot of money, which was most of the people who were mob connected and Batista connected. Keep in mind, Cast, you know, Cuba was like Vegas. It was uh, only in the southeastern part of the United States. It was it was the center of gambling for the United States. It was also the center of mob activity. So all these very wealthy Cubans fled Cuba because Castro was taking all their money, set up shop in Cuba in 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 uh, not just Miami but all across Florida, particularly Miami. And, you know, they're a force. They're a political force in Florida. Can't deny that. So it looks like maybe this is just DeSantis trying to ingratiate himself with the Cuban community to get some more votes. He's up for re-election in November. But then he goes a step farther. And he said, by the way, we're going to mandate that our schools devote at least 45 minutes of curriculum to the victims of communism. Now, that's where my ears perked up. When you start mandating 
pro essentially propaganda in the schools. Now, this is the same Ron DeSantis who is not mandating that civics education happen in the United States. That you know went by the wayside uh, with Bill Bennett uh, when Ronald Reagan made him our education secretary, broadly speaking. This is not Ron DeSantis saying that we need to teach tolerance in our schools. This is not, you know, this is Ron DeSantis saying we need to teach about communism. And I'm wondering, and we don't know yet what the curriculum is going to be, but it looks like this one particular right-wing group has come up with a curriculum that he wants to use. Is this going to be an excuse to, to teach libertarian economics? Is this going to be an excuse to indoctrinate our kids that you know, communism is when the government takes care of, your, of you people. And, you know, communism, like, you know, Social Security and Medicare and communism, that's communism. And you shouldn't have that in America. And, and the Democrats are all communists because they're in favor of Social Security and Medicare. Is that what's going to happen in Florida? I'm, I would bet 50 bucks. Well, I wouldn't because I don't bet generally. But you get my point. I think this is more than DeSantis just sucking up to the Cuban community in Florida. I think this is the beginning of DeSantis trying to flip the public schools in Florida the same way the, the, the Koch brothers have been funding colleges all over the country to teach right-wing economics. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And to turn an entire generation of Florida school children against New Deal policies, basically. Alejandro in Miami. Hey, Alejandro, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. And I heard you talking about this answer, so I definitely have to chime in. I agree with you with your assessment of the, his, the political propaganda regarding saying the law at the Freedom Tower in Miami to teach, to, you know, promote the victims of communism stuff. And, of course, I'm like, all I see is just decades of Republican pandering to Cuban Americans and now, of course, Venezuelan Americans. You know, who, you know, have a socialist regime as well or common, whatever you want to call it, but definitely leaning in that direction. So I definitely think this is all political posturing. This is all just to garner more support for his upcoming election later this year. He's running for governor, of course. So I just think it's just it's just political pandering nonsense. It's like because in my opinion, I'm like, why don't they have a victims of fascism day? Or why don't you, or even better, victims of totalitarianism, authoritarianism day? That would make more inclusive. Or victims of, of theocracy day. Yeah. Vic they yells, Victims of Capitalism Day. <laughs> Indeed. Exactly. It's so ridiculous. And, 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 it, and it's kind of like, yeah, you're right. It's just pandering to those old Cubans. Like, just to give you some context, I'm Cuban-American. My dad's Cuban. My mom's Mexican. So I've heard this whole spiel my whole life about, oh, the Republicans support Cubans and ever since, you know, the Bay of Pigs with Kennedy and stuff like that. And, of course, I think it's nonsense. It's just my, my, my philosophy is I don't base my political opinions about what happened over 50 years ago on an incident, you know, on a, on a bad incident and just hold it against the Democrats or somebody. I think that's a silly way of conducting, of, you know, having, basing your political philosophy on, especially when Republicans are just pandering to you. So I just wanted to go into, like, the, the, what the bill is seeking to do. And this is what he said, that they wanted to, you know, teach about the evils of communism and, and that has had, you know, let, you know, affected hundreds of millions of individuals who have suffered under the way of this discredit ideology and that, and that he thinks How, a lot of young people... Alejandro, forgive the interruption, we just have about 20 seconds. How unified is the Cuban-American community in Florida around the Republican Party? 
I think just really it's just the old school right wing Republicans and some younger, unfortunately, Republicans or Venezuelan and Cuban persuasion yet might support the census. But a lot of Cuban Americans, more younger generation, such as myself, I don't think we support the census or Republicans in general. I think they speak to the to the part of Republican pandering. Fascinating. Alejandro, thank you. Thank you for the insight. And thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. It's always good to hear from you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book on the Tom Hartman Book Club today is Cuban Women Confront the Future. It's an interview with Vilma Espen. Vilma Espen was the president of the Federation of Cuban Women since its founding in 1960 and was the chair of the Commission for Social Prevention and president of the Infancy Institute and the International Federation of Democratic Women. And it's a long-form interview, actually, the book. So the first question, what does socialism mean in the lives of a Cuban family, and in particular, Cuban woman, Velma Espen? For the Cuban family, especially the woman, socialism has meant an enormous improvement to the quality of life and personal development. We should remember that until January 1st, 1959, in our country, hunger, poverty, exploitation, repression, and dependence reigned. The revolution opened up new horizons in the economic, political, and social fields, and amongst its key principles is the defense of equal rights for all human beings. The constant struggle to make ends meet disappeared, and with it the antagonism between people competing for the crumbs that could help them escape the tragic destiny that awaited the majority. Thus the family, the basic cell of society, could develop in a rounded way. Our revolution assured all Cubans the chance to exercise each one of their inalienable rights. Each citizen is assured that food prices are reasonable and that education and medical services are free. The state makes a systemic effort to improve living standards to the extent that it is permitted by the tense battle for development that we wage under blockade and constant imperialist threats. Childcare facilities have been created to provide care for the children of tens of thousands of working women from the age of three months to six years. Services to lighten domestic work have been created. Hundreds of thousands of students have also received free lunch at day school and all their meals at boarding school. Hundreds of thousands of workers also receive their meals at a moderate price in their workplace. More industrial laundries and dry cleaners have been established and more domestic labor-saving devices are available with preference in acquisition and cheaper prices for workers. Huge resources are dedicated to housing construction in urban and rural zones. We also try to guarantee recreational facilities and spiritual enjoyment to all the population. Of course, the possibilities are exciting. But also what we have achieved to date, considering our limitations, is already vastly superior to what families experienced in the past. Social Security provides an income for those who cannot work. As far as women are concerned, equal rights have certainly changed their position in the family and in society. A woman's participation in social production, because it implies her financial independence, has altered her dependent position in the marriage and allowed a change in her ideas and the way she looks at life. The laws that govern family relations, such as the family code, are based on equality and guarantee the right of members of the family to participate in society, to work, study, and to responsibly educate the children in line with our revolutionary principles. This does not mean that we achieved all that we aspire to. We still have problems of a material nature to resolve, which are directly related to our economic development. There is still the need to eliminate backward ideas that some people hold, men and women, with respect to the role that each person should play within the home, the nature of the socialist family and the relationship between a couple, ideas which work against the full participation of women in the building of a new society. 
Obviously, the economic security guaranteed by both men and women having access to work, free health care, and education, the obvious satisfaction and confidence in oneself, that equal opportunity and the chance to fully develop to the extent of one's talents, intelligence, and aptitude offer to each person, the constant motivation and emotional stability that comes from feeling useful, recognized, and dignified as a human being, everything that socialism has brought to us undoubtedly fulfills the deepest desires of a family, particularly the woman, who until just a quarter century ago was exploited, oppressed, and marginalized in the family and in society. Question. What is the primary concern in Cuba, work or the human being? What place do women occupy within this concern? Velma Aspen. In Cuba, a country that is building socialism, the highest aim is human happiness, based on respect for the fundamental human rights of each person. That includes full social equality to education, health care, work, and professional training with the chance to employ all of one's faculties to take an active role in society and to help develop that society, to create the material and spiritual basis for a full, harmonious life where the highest qualities of both men and women flourish. To reach those aspirations requires work, talent, dedication, and willingness from everybody. It requires constant scientific and technological innovation to assure economic and social development. Thus, each member of our society along with the right to work and all the benefits brought by the revolution, has acquired the duty to help create the economic basis necessary for such advantages. The building of a new society and the fulfillment of new aspirations could not possibly be achieved except on the basis of work and the willingness of the whole population. And the people work with enthusiasm because work is the means for creating wealth and goods for all to enjoy. Work that is free from exploitation does require a new dimension a quality that stimulates and produces satisfaction. To feel that you are useful and are creating your destiny, to project yourselves toward the future through your work, to cultivate the future. In a speech in January 1964, Che Guevara said that when each Cuban viewed work as a, a vital expression of their human creativity, technology, technique, and inventions would proceed apace and all would participate with an uncontainable force in building the new society. The book. Cuban Women Confront the Future by Vilma Espen. And welcome back. I wanted to just uh, point to one other quick story here before I pick up your phone calls. Uh, Dallas Schroeder is a, uh, uh, an election official in Colorado, a uh, Republican maggot. And, you know, uh, apparently he's uh, the clerk of Albert County, Colorado specifically. And he just returned two hard drives from, county, from the county's election machine data uh, that he had copied back in August with the help of a, a pair of conspiracy theorists linked to uh, Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell is like behind an awful lot of this stuff. And, uh, you know, very, very strange stuff going on here this morning. Um, Meanwhile, cons conspiracy theorists have uh, reviewed this data. In other words, it's been passed around in maggot circuits, circles. And he is, by the way, the second Colorado clerk accused of breaching voting machines under his supervision. The other is Tina Peters of Mesa County, uh, who's facing a barrage of criminal charges right now. Uh, she appeared at Lindell's cyber symposium on supposed, supposed voter fraud. There's a bigger issue here, though. I mean, this is... It's interesting that they're prosecuting people for trying to prove that our voting systems are unsafe. But here's the real, here's the real thing. Donald Trump has been sowing doubt about the American political system since he entered the primary six years ago. 
maybe seven years ago now. He said at the very beginning that the elections were rigged and that there was no way he could win. He was planning on when he when he lost the Republican nomination in 2016, he was planning. I mean, he was planning on losing and he was planning on blaming it on a rigged system. He ended up winning, so he couldn't do that. So then when he went into the 2016 election, he said in numerous public forums that he was going to lose again because the system was rigged. The voting machines were rigged. Everything was rigged by Hillary Clinton. Again, trying to damage our faith in the American political system. This is the primary message that is loved and embraced. That message being that the American political system is actually a phony, it's a sham, it's a charade, it's, it's, uh, it's rigged. This is the primary message that people like Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin, Saw, bin Salman, bone saw, whatever, um, love to see promoted around the world. Oh, you can't trust American democracy. You shouldn't try to be like an American democracy because American democracy isn't really democracy. It's a rigged system says Putin to his people, says MBS to his people, says Bolsonaro and Duterte to their people. You need a strongman government. You need somebody you can trust, who you like, who's going to take the government in his little fist and strangle it. And then we all just bow down to dear leader. The American media has really fallen down on pointing out what's really going on here. What's really going on here is not just, oh, I lost an election, I'm gonna claim fraud. No, what's really going on here is an effort to cause Americans to lose faith in American democracy, in our Republican form of government, so that we will then be more willing to embrace a strongman oligarchic autocracy. We will be more willing to embrace somebody like Bolsonaro or somebody like Orban or somebody like Putin in the guise of somebody like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. That's what's going on. And our media needs to start just saying it out loud. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, let's pick up your phone calls here. James in Naples, Florida. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Um, just a couple things. You, you brought something to mind. I was actually born in Florida a while ago and went to public schools here. And back in the 60s, they had a program called uh, Americanism versus Communism. And we had a book. I still have it. The textbook was called Masks of Communism. And it was just exactly the propaganda that you would expect it to be. So I'm sure they're just going to update that. Interesting. But the real reason I was calling was I hear all of this outrage and shock about anyone daring to protest at the homes of Supreme Court justices in Washington, D.C. When those protests haven't been violent, thank God, and they have been vocal in the public street, not in their yard. No trespassing, no laws have been broken, but everyone is gripping their pearls and and shocked. But let me tell you, I, I think that it's appropriate because those justices Trump-appointed justices in particular, are going to take away the privacy rights of many, many people. I mean, this. So I read Alito's opinion. I read it. I printed it, and I read it. Me Not too. all the footnotes at the end, all of those citations. But I have to say, there are many rights that are not enumerated that have been taken for granted just because he cites witch-burning judges from the 17th century doesn't exactly mean that's the basis of our jurisprudence. So I think that those justices should be protested. Maybe they can see they're not ensconced in their marble halls with their black robes, Amy Cracker Barrel and Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh. Maybe they can see that these are real people that care deeply. But I don't think it'll make a difference. Anyway, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate being able to give my venting. <laughs> you're welcome, James, and thanks for listening to SiriusXM and for your comments. I think you're absolutely right, and, and let's not forget, in 1984, this Supreme Court, you know, not the same justices, but uh, back in 1984, during the Reagan administration, when Reagan had embraced this, uh, you know, this new idea, it was new to the evangelical movement, which was pro-choice as late as 1979, but by, in 1984, the Supreme Court said that you can't Massachusetts had a law that said that there was a 35-foot buffer zone around abortion clinics where yes. protesters could not, could not step inside of that. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, that's wrong. We're going to tear down that 35-foot buffer zone because you are denying anti-abortion protesters their right under the First Amendment to peaceably assemble and protest. Now, under the, the First Amendment says to protest, you know, to petition your government for redress of grievances. Protesting outside an abortion clinic is not petitioning your government, although it's been wide, you know, it's been broadly interpreted as a form of petitioning your government. But protesting in front of a Supreme Court justice's home is absolutely petitioning your government for redress of grievance. So, yeah, I am with you, James. Thank you. The other big story that I wanted to share with you in this hour and, and open up for conversation also is Housing Bubble 2.0. Now, I've, I've been watching the housing market. Louise and I bought a, a house. We, we bought and sold a house. We moved uh, about two years ago, about a year and a half ago. And one of our kids just bought a house and, and sold a house and moved. And uh, so, you know, I've been keeping track of the housing market here in Portland. And I can tell you, it's gone nuts. 
And this is, uh, you know, just a just a fascinating thing. Let me just share some of these statistics with you. I mean, you, we had Biden this morning talking about inflation. And uh, frankly, I think that, you know, obviously we've got an inflation problem from the pent-up demand from COVID. And we've got an inflation problem from greedy monopolistic corporations just being able to charge whatever the market bears because they no longer have competitors. They own the marketplace. And the third factor, the, the third big factor is oil. The Saudis are still refusing to increase oil production because they want, you know, they want the Trump family back in power. They just gave $2 billion to Jared Kushner, for goodness sake. But just consider these numbers. Over the past two years, U.S. home prices are up 34.4%. Now, that just doesn't happen. That's a 19.8% increase in housing prices just in the last year. The historic annual average is 4.6%. This is why the way that most Americans, and, you know, I'm one of them. I mean, the way that most Americans have most of their wealth and the way that they've grown most of their wealth is in their homes. It's the, typically their largest asset. And it's why, you know, if you can buy a house, you are pretty much guaranteed over time that every year you're going to see almost a 5% increase in your largest asset. You can't typically get that anywhere else. You can't buy bonds that pay 5%. You can't get savings accounts that pay 5%. You know, 5% in the stock market is considered spectacular. But buying a house, you can do that. But in the last two years, 34%? I mean, that's, that's pretty nuts. What that says to me is that we are in a housing bubble. We've got 44 housing markets. and Every one of America's 100 largest housing markets is overpriced right now. 44 markets are overpriced by at least 30%. 13 are overpriced by at least 50%. Interestingly, the cities that Republicans love to hate, New York City and San Francisco, are only overpriced by 3% and 13% respectively. Back in uh, March of 2007, now you'll recall, <laughs> this was the following year, there was the, the housing bubble burst. Well, actually, it was in late 2007. The housing bubble burst, and it took down the Bush administration. In March of 2007, 99 of the nation's 100 largest housing markets were overpriced. 40 of those markets were overpriced by 30%, 19 of them by 50%. In other words, the bubble that led to the housing bust that took down the entire world's economy in 2007 was not as bad as the bubble we have right now. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that we don't have liar loans right now, which was the main thing that took down the banks. We don't have banks doing extremely risky lending because it was outlawed after 2007 by the Obama administration, by and large. Congress got into the act. The Obama administration started re-regulating the banks. I mean, a lot of this came out of the end of Glass-Steagall in 1999, pushed by Republican Senator Phil Graham. An awful lot of it, though, also came out of the George W. Bush administration, essentially deregulating the banks at multiple levels through the regulatory agencies that the White House had some control over. Obama put those regulations back into place. So now if the housing bubble pops... And I believe it probably will, although there are those who are suggesting it won't because it's being driven also by speculation by hedge funds that are buying houses like crazy right now to turn into rental properties and by offshore investors, Chinese and Russian oligarchs and things like that. But if it bursts, probably the main consequence is going to be that if you try to sell your house in the next two or three or four years, you won't get back what you paid for it.
but it probably won't take down the whole American economy. We're also seeing, by the way, this housing bubble is international, just like the inflation bubble is international, suggesting that it has, that it's not just US, the U.S. Fed's loose money policies, suggesting that it actually has to do with people literally reevaluating their lives during two years of lockdown. It's a consequence of the COVID pandemic. So I just wanted to lay out that whole, the whole landscape for you so you can be fully informed going forward. So is a housing bubble 2.0 underway? No doubt about it. Will it be as bad as 2007? Probably not. Picking up your calls, Rose in Chicago. Hey, Rose, what's up? Hey, Tom. I have a quick comment about gas prices and a suggestion regarding forcing women to bear children. Okay. My comment, my comment highlights Americans' priorities. People are complaining about high gas prices, but it's funny that there's still long lines of cars wasting gas while idling at Starbucks drive throughs waiting to buy $5 cups of coffee. I find that very interesting. Yeah, good And point. My, my, suggest, my suggestion about forcing women to bear children, maybe if women will be forced to actually register their pre, uh, pregnancies with the authorities, maybe at the same time they should automatically be signed up for social safety net programs like Medicaid and food assistance, et cetera. Yeah, although, sure the Republicans would although, love that. although the predicate of that is that they have to register themselves when they're pregnant. Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah. I, I get your yeah. point. What you're what you're highlighting yeah. is the absolute bizarre, screaming hypocrisy of people who claim to be pro-life, but once a baby is born, they have no interest in helping mom or child to survive, much less thrive. And, exactly. and even, even the Jim Mansions of the world. Yeah, there you go. And it's a crime. It's just absolutely wrong. Rose, thank you for the call. Trey in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Trey, what's on your mind? So a couple of years ago, you had made an argument that there was a group of Trump voters who had a legitimate economic grievance that hadn't been answered by both parties. Does that sound familiar? Remind me what that grievance was. About how their jobs had been shipped over to China. And oh, in some yeah. Cases they yeah. had to train their employees. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, was you know, a, it was a position that Trump took that, frankly, the Democratic Party should have taken. It would have been, it required them to repudiate Bill Clinton and, and some of Obama's policies, but they should have done it. And by the way, some were. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were, for example. Back to you. Mm -hmm. so, so, so my question is, 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 what do you do with those groups of people who, who, while they have a legitimate economic grievance, also reside in the group of people that you said were, you know, the white racists, the social conservatives, people who we just have different views on socially and economic policy. How, how are we going to be able to reach out to those people? I think it's important to differentiate. There, there are, just like in the Democratic Party, you have multiple interest groups, shall we say. The same is true of the Republican Party. And, and there is a large cadre, and it's probably, you know, probably used to be 10 or 20 percent. It's probably today 30 or 40 percent. But who knows? I'd love to see some polling on this of basically racist, misogynist, homophobic, hateful people that form much of the base of the Republican Party. Donald Trump authorized them, basically, uh, you know, allowed them to come out of the closet. There's also people in the Republican Party who are what I would call lifestyle Republicans. The Republican Party has been very successful in branding itself as NASCAR and rodeo and rural. And so you've got people who think, yeah, that's me. I like to go to rodeos. I love NASCAR. I live in the country. I must be a Republican. And, you know, they're not necessarily the screaming, hateful racists. There's also, you know, another third group, the, the group that you just mentioned, Trey, who realize that 40 years of neoliberal policy has screwed them by shipping our jobs overseas and deindustrializing America. 
They don't realize that that was a policy that was that was formulated by the Reagan administration, was was written, the, those, the GATT agreement, which led to the World Trade Organization, and the NAFTA agreement were both negotiated by the George H.W. Bush administration following Reagan. But they do know that it was signed into law by Bill Clinton, all of this stuff. And so they blame the Democrats for that. And, you know, I would try to reach out and educate those people. And obviously there's some overlap between all these different groups. If your point is that just tarring all of the Republicans with the brush of, you know, you're all a bunch of racists is counterproductive. I agree with you. Is it, was that what you were trying to yeah. say? So, I mean, in a sense, yes and no. I just, I worry about this because I think it's fair to say that there's about 45% of the, well, I shouldn't say 45, that's a large number. There's about 42% of the country that we can't help. And I know that that sounds defeatist. But can't I, help. I, but I think what do you mean? Can you mean can't reach? But like, we can't reach. We can't get them back to an empirical basis of reality. We right. can't help them with, you know, examining their philosophical beliefs. They're just going to keep being out there, and we can't help them. But there is that 3% who they may not be, you know, that they may not be pro-choice. You know, they may not be, you know, on the liberal side of social issues. But if the Democrats could sharpen their message and we could get the corporate Democrats out of Congress, we, we could at least start trying to reach out to those people who do have the legitimate economic grievance and we could start fighting for jobs protections that you know, Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders warn and the House Progressive Caucus that fought for. It's more of just a, it's yeah. more of just examining what the future looks like. I, I agree with you, Trey, and and I think it's important for you know for that kind of messaging to go on. I think also Democrats need to start claiming some of the lifestyle badges that the GOP has claimed, and in that regard. Some of your so-called corporate Democrats, you know, the Joe Manchins, basically, actually could be very helpful, you know, in bringing those folks into the Democratic Party. I, I don't know if they're inclined to, but they could be. So, Trey, thank you. Uh, thank you for a thoughtful call. It, it's uh, an important. These are all important issues. And, and, you know, the political strategy going forward, the Democratic Party is never going to succeed if it brands itself as, you know, exclusively representing any one particular niche. But I think they've done a, they're trying to do a pretty good job of saying that they're a big tent party. The Republicans are doing a pretty good job of saying, no, no, the Democrats are just representing a narrow slice. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I just wanted to share a quick story with you. This is... Um if you have friends, acquaintances, neighbors, relatives, whatever, who have embraced the QAnon cult, you might want to keep an eye out for this. Uh, one of the latest things, uh, one of the latest hot things in the QAnon cult, and this probably comes out of a distorted understanding of the, of the bizarre premises that underlie the whole sovereign citizen movement, is that paying for your electricity, your water, your sewage, uh, your property taxes, all that stuff that goes around with your home um, is uh, optional. 
people do it because they think they're supposed to, but the law doesn't actually require it, and they can't shut off your electricity if you don't pay the bill. This is what is being told to QAnon people. And, in fact, one, one follower said, the more who do it, it, it they're, they're actually encouraging people, don't pay your gas bill, don't pay your water bill, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the followers said, the more who do it, the quicker we can be free of enslavement. Those still living in fear are making it harder to get out. Don't be afraid, because we're in this together. In other words, if everybody stops paying their electric bills, the electric companies will just say, oh, okay, we, go, we give, we'll just give you free electricity. So one follower of the Queen of Canada, one of the QAnon uh, influencers who is promoting this idea, posted on a QAnon message board, I stopped paying Hydro three months ago. Hydro was the name of their utility. I got phone reminders, a reminder by mail, and an actual person called my husband. He does not follow QAnon, and he was not pleased, told me to pay the Hydro bill. I want the government to collapse, but not my marriage, so I paid. Um, and then uh, somebody else uh, noted, this is uh, extremist researcher Christine Sarteshi. She says, a couple of times a week now, we are seeing people who are posting something like, please help me, my utilities are going to get cut off, or along those same lines where they're experiencing some type of negative consequence from attempting to follow these decrees. It looks like the bill payment decree is the one I see mentioned the most in terms of people being harmed. One follower uh, wrote, is help coming soon? The warning to stock up and, and telling us not to pay electric utilities is really difficult. I'm scared I'm gonna get it cut off and I don't have the money to reconnect. Be careful, people. Yes, Donald Trump is the most aggressive and most effective you know, con man, scammer, hustler in the United States today, but he's not the only one. There's a whole crowd following him. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's on your mind today? Buenos dias, mi amigo. Hey, buenos dias. One quick comment I want to make is that Trump, 12 days into his uh, administration, uh, like you mentioned earlier, let the Russians in and uh, uncovered a mole, uncovered a spy. Yeah. Now, if this was World War II, what would the penalty for that have been? It would have been serious stuff. I mean, look at what no, they did with the Russians. Firings. Squad, yeah. All right, to the point. Uh, I want to point out, as you can probably see on your screen, that, uh, look, did Obama contain Zika? Uh, don't, I, I'm, I, I'm not yes, sure where did. you're going with this, Chaz. Yeah, there were zero deaths, and Obama contained Ebola. Maybe there was one death. Right. Could Trump have contained COVID-19? I think it's pretty unlikely, but he could have reduced well, the death rate substantially. Right. New Zealand essentially eliminated COVID by locking down sensibly in contact tracing. That's right. This week, America... So, so did uh, Taiwan, by the way. So did South Korea. Thank you. And this month, America is going to hit a horrific milestone, one million COVID deaths. Every single one of those million deaths are on Trump's hands. I agree. I agree. That was, you know, one of the, the, the three major crimes that Donald Trump committed that was part of my opening rant today. And not only are those million deaths on Donald Trump's hands, but they came about because the, the literally the week that the headline hit, April 7th, 2020, the week that that headline hit, that mostly most of the deaths were among black people, the non-elderly deaths were among black people, that was the moment when Donald Trump and the entire right-wing machine decided, hey, let's get back to work. You know, and that was the beginning of the trashing masks, 
I mean, literally the week before, they, they were going to send millions of masks to Americans via the post office. Every American was supposed to get five masks via the post office. Um, but, Can you but, imagine, yeah, if this had happened on Obama's watch, I think we're all getting sick and tired of this uh, hypocrisy. If it had happened on Obama's watch right now, there would be show trials going on in Congress if the Republicans controlled Congress. There would be show trials going on in Congress to determine whether Obama should be held guilty for murder. Thank or you, manslaughter, at the very least. Yeah, thank you, Chaz. I think this is pretty straightforward stuff. And it's amazing. By the way, I did want to share one other story with you, but I have to find it here. Oh, I got my writing newsletter, you know, the writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, this morning. Some of the headlines from right-wing websites. Overturning Roe would bring America back to life. This is from The Federalist. If the Supreme Court does not overturn Roe v. Wade, its legitimacy is finished. And so is the nation the founders created. Right. Ben Franklin actually wrote a manual on how to do abortions. <laughs> Another one. Is Biden's new press secretary an undercover insurrectionist? That's Corrine Jean-Pierre, who I am the world's biggest fan of. I think she is absolutely spectacular. But one of the right-wing media is saying... Uh, Biden's new press secretary is an undercover insurrectionist who is trying to overthrow the U.S. government and destroy democracy as we know it. Really? Really? We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is from the introduction, Coming to America. I carry something special in my wallet. My cousin, Jean-Paul Pierre, gave it to me before my first day working for President Barack Obama in the White House. Remember this, he asked, as he handed me an old snapshot, the corners creased, the colors washed out. I gasped. I had forgotten the trip our extended family, me and my cousins, had taken to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1982, just before I turned eight. There we were, seated on the base of the railing in front of the south lawn of the White House, with the Truman balcony in the far background. Jean-Paul gave me the photo to remind me of the pride my family takes in my success of all of the people in the Haitian American community I carry on my shoulders. I kept that photo with me from then on. Every day when I got money out of that wallet for a cup of tea or a bagel at the cafeteria in the Eisenhower Executive Office building in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but glance at the image of that timid, skinny young girl sandwiched between my much older cousins. Back then, I was so shy that the nuns who taught kindergarten at my Catholic school called my mother in to say that they were worried about me. She doesn't play with other children, they said. She just keeps to herself. Over the years, I worked hard to overcome that. You've made us all proud, Jeanette told me. Code for how unlikely it was, inconceivable, really, that anyone from our family could get to the White House. My Haitian-American father and mother, a New York City taxi driver and a home health care aide, didn't closely follow American politics. They were more likely to discuss the viciously oppressive dictator dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who ruled Haiti from 1957 to 1986, than any American president. Like many immigrants, they came here to find a better life for their children. I was proof that their struggle had been worth it. As an openly gay woman of color, I have also had my own struggles entering the world of politics, which even now can feel like a boys' club. Despite the record number of women who ran and won in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections, women occupy less than 23% of the seats in Congress, even though more than half of the population 
is women. But when I was in the White House, I was usually too busy to think about how I had gone from being that meek schoolgirl with braids to the confident woman in a crisp tailored pantsuit who worked as Obama's regional political director in the Office of Political Affairs. I was the eyes and ears of the President of the United States in 12 northeastern states, from Maryland to Maine. The political affairs wing has three offices in a corner on the first floor of the EEOB. The Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a beautiful historic building close to the White House's West Wing. The West Wing is home to the Oval Office where the U.S. President works. The first time I flashed my security clearance badge to the sharply dressed Marine standing guard at the double door entrance and walked into the West Wing, I remember looking around and thinking, this is so small. It looks so much bigger on TV. As a campaign operative for Senator John Edwards in 2007 and 8, I binge-watched the NBC 1999 to 2006 series starring Martin Sheen as a fictional American president named Josiah Bartlett. Still, it's hard not to be awed. I also felt a constant sense of responsibility because I was a black woman working for the first black American president. When you work at the White House, whether it's for a Democrat or a Republican, you have to put in a 12 to 15 hour workday or more. There's a reason why most people don't last a whole four year term. And under President Donald Trump, turnover among his staff has occurred at an historically high rate. It's an absolute joy, but it's also a heavy lift. I like to get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning to prepare for our first meeting at 9 o'clock, and I rarely left before 9 p.m. I would go home to my furnished basement apartment in a semi-sketchy part of town in northeast Washington. I had taken a pay cut to work in the White House. My place was cold, dark, and dreary, but I knew I didn't need more than a place to crash. A good night's sleep was never a given. There were plenty of times that my boss emailed me at 1 or 2 in the morning expecting me to get back to him ASAP, and I did. In those days, I walked around with a BlackBerry phone, the preferred device for politicos for White House work in one hand, and in the other hand, another BlackBerry issued by the Democratic National Committee for political work. Taxpayers did not pay for President Obama to do fundraisers or other political events, so having different phones for different purposes kept us honest and out of trouble. Because I was so intent on doing things the right way, I even carried a third phone, a personal one, in my pants pocket for calls and emails with family and friends. This was not a requirement. I just wanted to be extra mindful. The stakes were too big to make a mistake. The pressure was high, but I was proud of my role and wouldn't hide it. When phone number three rang and I would tell the person on the other end I had just gotten off Air Force One of the president or I was about to make a trip with Vice President Joe Biden on Air Force Two, they would say, Kareen, listen to you. You don't even realize how cool your job is. Getting involved in politics can be intimidating. If you weren't participating in Debate Club or Young Democrats of America or Model United Nations by the time you finished high school, I know it can feel like you have no choice in politics. That's why I'm writing this book. I am proof that that's not true. I was a late bloomer. You hear stories about folks whose passions and talents were already obvious by the time they were in kindergarten. I am not like that. I first ran for office at Columbia University, and I wasn't drawn to a career in politics until after graduate school. Just how little did my family discuss American politics growing up? Meet Michael Dukakis. The first time I encountered politics was late on a Thursday night in July 1988. I was 13 years old. My sister Esther was six and my brother Daniel four. My siblings and I were curled up on my parents' queen-size bed watching the television that sat in the corner of my mother's wooden vanity dresser. Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.